This is the Stories from 1916 podcast. Using first-hand accounts and archive material, we tell the less well-known stories of ordinary men and women who did extraordinary things during Ireland's revolutionary period. Kathleen Boland came from a fiercely nationalist family. Dating back to an ancestor who was dragged from the back of a cart and whipped through the streets of Carlingford for making pikes for the 1798 rebellion. And her father, a close ally of Parnell's who died following a blow to the back of the head with a chair at a heated nationalist meeting. All her brothers were members of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, most notable of whom was Harry Boland. Harry was very deeply involved with the nationalist movement from early on and was a close friend of Michael Collins until the split over the Anglo-Irish Treaty. All this meant that Kathleen Boland was very well positioned to experience and participate in the extraordinary and tragic events that occurred in Ireland at the start of the 20th century. The Boland family were very close with their neighbours the Shouldices, who feature in the first podcast in this series. Kathleen would then go on to marry Sean O'Donovan, whose brother Con was the subject of her third episode. The story is told through Kathleen's eyes by her daughter Eileen, and it begins, as many do, with the Hoth gun running. In July 1914, when the guns were brought in at Hoth, I was at home in Merino Crescent, Clontarf. When the volunteers were coming back, I knew some of them who were returning by the laneway at the back of our house, and I told them that they could throw their guns into our guard and I would mind them for them. They came back for them a short time afterwards. When the Easter Rising broke out, Harry was among those who seized a wine depot in nearby Fairview. Kathleen ventured down to add her support. I knew somehow that Ina Schuldice, who was living in Diggs at Addison Road, but was away on holidays, had some ammunition stored in her trunk. I went and broke open the trunk. I collected the ammunition, about 10 packets of .303 rifle ammunition, and also brought it along to Gilby's. I fancied the reason for occupying this post was that there was a camp of British soldiers at the Bull Wall and also the volunteers were probably expecting a movement of soldiers from Belfast by the Great Northern Line, which was near at hand. She returned to her house for the rest of the week and learned of the fate of her brothers in the aftermath. All survived. The eldest two brothers, Harry and Garrod, were imprisoned, Harry being sentenced to death due to his rank, although this was later commuted to five years' penal servitude. The youngest Boland brother, however, managed to avoid trouble. Edmund, who had a week's beard on him and was black from the grime and smoke of the burning Imperial Hotel and smelled of gunpowder, said he'd been at fairy house races and hadn't been able to get home. They did not arrest him. He went and had a feed and a clean-up at a friend's house and he then came home. That was how he escaped arrest. When the War of Independence was underway, the Boland House in Merino Crescent was well known to the police as a hive of Republican activity and was regularly raided. I find it hard to distinguish between the different times our house was raided. I remember one raid, and I think it must have been at a fairly early period. We had three other volunteers with Harry in bed in the house at the time, including, I think, Jack Showdice. The police in charge were Inspector Love and Sergeant Smith, who was afterwards shot. My mother had previously arranged that if a raid took place, any volunteers that happened to be in the house should escape by the skylight in the roof. So she kept a small stepladder and a table up there. On this occasion, 
when the knock came to the door, I shouted through the window that there were only women in the house and the raiders would have to give us time to get dressed. In the meantime, the four volunteers, including Harry, got out in their pyjamas through the skylight and ran along the valley of the roofs of the houses of the Crescent and got down through the skylight of the last house. When the raiders came in, I first brought them down to the kitchen premises, the coal house, etc., so as to give time to the lads to escape and to my mother to clear away the signs of occupation. She had, however, not removed pieces of the ceiling from the floor. The police leaders looked up at the skylight and said, that's a very good place. I replied, would you like to go up? Love merely shook his head. He was probably afraid to try the skylight for fear he would be shot. Kathleen became more and more involved in the activities of the Republicans. Based in Harry's tailoring shop on Abbey Street in Dublin, she took delivery of messages and arms for Michael Collins's nearby office and had a hidden arms store built for guns and ammunition. As a woman, she was less likely to be stopped and searched and often delivered messages for top-level Republicans. On orders from Michael Collins, I was at Croke Park on Bloody Sunday to deliver dispatches to one of his couriers. These dispatches, which had been handed to me from a person from Cork that morning, I had on my person and got safely through the enemy at Croke Park. I had them delivered that night. Harry Boland was appointed Ireland's ambassador to America and spent long periods of time there fundraising for the fledgling republic. While over there, he encountered a party from Russia doing the same thing, although with less success than the Irish. It was at this time that Harry brought home the jewels that he had received on behalf of the Irish Republic from the representative of the revolutionary government of Russia in New York, a man called Martins. This man had apparently been empowered by his government to borrow money on the security of the jewels, and our representatives in America agreed to lend $20,000 on them. That is all I know about the transaction in America. I presume our people at that period had a sort of fellow feeling with the poor downtrodden Russians who, like themselves, were struggling to throw off the yoke of slavery. And that is the reason they were willing to give them a little financial help. I should have mentioned that a day or two after Harry's return from America, he went to Mick Collins in the Gresham Hotel with the intention of handing over the jewels. This was, of course, during the recess of the treaty debates. Evidently, there was a row between Mick and Harry. I believe because Harry refused to take the side of the treaty. And this was the end of their friendship. In the course of the row, Mick took the jewels out of his pocket and threw them at Harry, saying, take these back, they're bloodstained. Harry, who had already obtained Mick's receipt for them, put them back in his pocket and walked out. When he came home to us, he was in a blazing temper and he showed visible signs of having had a serious struggle with Mick, who had been a bit rowdy with him and had no doubt been celebrating over the festive season. Harry instructed Kathleen to keep the jewels until Ireland had attained its sovereignty, as per the conditions of the loan. We kept the jewels in the house. During the various raids by the Free State soldiers during the Civil War, my ma- mother carried them around on her person and afterwards we made various hiding places for them. One being a little recess with a sliding door in the hot press, which my husband made. Another place was kept for them for a long time 
in a box in a hole we made in the back of the chimney recess by pulling out a brick behind the range, which we hardly used at all. In that way, we held them secure, and in 1938, when de Valera had passed the constitution and had recovered the ports, we considered that Harry's wishes were fulfilled as far as we could foresee as regards our lifetime. Just six weeks into the Civil War, Harry Boland was staying in the Skerries Grand Hotel in North County Dublin. In the middle of the night, Free State soldiers raided the room. After a struggle, Harry was shot, wounding him fatally. Due to the highly charged atmosphere of Civil War at the time, accounts of the incident vary. Some say the soldiers intended to arrest him and only shot when he tried to escape, while others claim the intention was to murder him. When Harry was dying in St Vincent's Hospital on August 1st, 1922, as the results of wounds inflicted on him by the Free State soldiers in the Grand Hotel Skerries, a priest, Father Thornton, came on an outside car to our house in Clontarf to inform us of what had happened. He brought Harry's wallet with him and gave it to my mother. I accompanied him back to the hospital. When I entered the ward where Harry was, he motioned to me with his hand. I went over to his bed and was shocked at the sight of him. And I knew by the look of him that he was dying. However, I said, you'll get over this, Harry. He said, I know, Kit. I don't think so. I asked him then, who fired the shot? I'll never tell you, Kit, he said. The only thing I'll say is that it was a friend of my own that was in prison with me that fired the shot. I'll never tell the name and don't try to find out. I forgive him and I want no reprisals. I want to be buried in the grave with Cahalbrua. After Harry's death, I was sent to America with Mrs Sheehy Skeffington on behalf of the Prisoner's Dependent Fund. I visited 28 different states in the 14 months. We took in also Montreal, Quebec and Toronto and collected an awful lot of money. I've forgotten the figure. Everywhere we got a great reception. When I returned, I was asked to go back again, but I wouldn't. I got married then. Marriage brought this period in Kathleen's life to an end. It seems incredible to think now that a woman who had been so heavily involved in the nationalist movement, who was clearly very brave, committed and skilled at what she did, would have no role in the state she helped to build once married. Her husband, Sean O'Donovan, who was actively involved in the IRA during the War of Independence, became a vet and then a senator. They moved to a house on the seafront in Clontarf and settled back into regular life after the turmoil of the previous years. Check out our podcasts on Conor Donovan and Jack Shouldice for more on this group of friends that had such a big part to play in Ireland's independence movement and visit www.storiesfrom1916.com Thanks for listening. <laughs>